0: March 18, 1990, the most audacious art heist of all time took place at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Two men dressed as police officers were admitted into the building by security, claiming to be responding to a disturbance call.
1: In 81 minutes, 13 pieces of art were stolen. Among the portraits stripped from their frames were works by Vermeer, Degas, and Rembrandt. Estimated at half a billion dollars, the heist has been categorized as the largest and most frustrating of all time. Theories of their whereabouts and those who perpetrated the crime are abundant.
0: In this podcast series, we will dig as deep as possible into the case, the theories, and the social and economic impact the greatest unsolved art heist of all time had on the community. This is Empty Frames. Welcome back to Empty Frames. I am Tim, here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? Tim, I'm a bit confused because you said welcome back to
1: Empty Frames, and I thought you were going to say missing or crawlspace. I love the fact that we just pop up these Empty Frame episodes just like right, right in your feed. Here you go. Bam. New Empty Frames episode. But I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Excited about this Empty Frames episode. I hope everyone else is doing wonderful. How are you? That's like, where are the paintings? That's a question. But my question is, how are you?
0: Well, thank you. I am doing pretty well, Lance. And uh, I'm really excited as well to bring our Empty Frames listeners. Another interview, a, a really interesting interview, and we touch on a lot of topics. We speak with a fellow named Eric Eulis. He has been on been on some TV shows. He's dug real deep into the disappearance and skyjacking of D.B. Cooper, which, uh, which is interesting. We speak about that a little bit. But Eric has turned his sights to the Gardner heist, and he just visited the Gardner Museum in Boston, Massachusetts recently. So we speak a little bit about that, and we also speak a little bit about the new clue in the Gardner heist, and we play a quick news segment from NBC Boston 10 when uh, when we get to that point. And I think that lead is pretty interesting as well, but it's definitely not our focus of this conversation.
1: No, and it's always good to get fresh voices and fresh eyes on the, uh, on the Gardner heist. Um, it's been so long. We're going on 32 years coming up in March, and... And we'll take anybody on who has had such a, uh, a reputation in the field of investigations like Eric Ulyss. He's a independent investigator. He's done great work on D.B. Cooper, actually turned up a lot of material that's connected to D.B. Cooper. And the way he's approaching the heist is from a very microscopic level, very detail oriented and honestly trying to hold the authorities feet to the fire on why we're still going on another year without any answers in this. And it's uh, you can read the frustration in his voice, too.
0: And also, Lance, one thing that uh, that we haven't covered um, since our last episode is the death of Robert Gentile. And uh, our very last episode that we did on this podcast feed was with a great newscaster named Dennis House. And he was, I believe, the last interview... Um, that Robert Gentile ever gave um, before his death. And Robert Gentile, of course, was known as the sole remaining person of interest in the Gardner Museum heist, but he died at 85 in September of 2021.
1: And the longer this goes on without any answers, Tim, this is what tends to happen with, with any mystery. All of the people who have some connection to it, whether it's factual or not, or some knowledge of it, they start to, they start to get older, they start to pass, and all of the questions are just that much harder to answer. Um, If there are people out there who know where the paintings are, which Eric believes that someone does know where the paintings are, uh, then they need to provide some sort of information because soon it's just going to be lost in the course of history. You're going to have another person pass and another person and with them go the answers.
0: And I hope you enjoy this interview with Eric Ullis, and check out his website, ericulis.com. That's dot scom And he's done some writing about the Gardner heist on there as well as D.B. Cooper. So it's an interesting site and you get to hear a little bit of his background as well. So thanks a lot for listening, everybody. We do hope to be back on Empty Frames pretty soon, actually, with a uh, a follow-up interview in the next few weeks. So thanks a lot for listening.
1: And if you have any information on the whereabouts of the stolen pieces of art from the museum, please go to crawlspace-media.com and hit the contact form. We'd love to hear from you.
0: Welcome to the podcast, Eric Eulis. How are you today? I'm
2: doing very well. How are you guys?
1: We're doing excellent. Uh, Great to have you on. If anyone is familiar with you and your work, uh, they know that your primary mystery that you cover is D.B. Cooper. And if anybody's aware of my absolute loathing of the D.B. Cooper mystery, they're probably wondering why you're on, especially on Empty Frames. But anyway, that's joking aside, well done with everything, and
0: thanks for coming on.
2: Yeah, my pleasure. So, uh, look forward to this.
0: Well, great. Well, we connected recently, and we were talking about the Gardner heist, and uh, of course, the uh, Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist from 1990, and you recently visited the Gardner Museum. Can you tell us what uh, your experience was like?
2: As you noted, my my experience has been primarily in the D.B. Cooper case for the last 14 or so years. Uh, but that I've been involved in some uh, newer projects one of which is the Gardner Museum heist and that's that's uh, a mystery of particular interest to me but uh, uh, so I've started digging into that uh, quite a bit recently and uh, as you noted I was actually in Boston uh, a couple weeks ago actually and got an opportunity to tour the uh, museum for the first time, which was spectacular, and you know, I'm one of these guys who thinks that you know, obviously digging into FBI files and police reports, and you know, talking with people, witnesses, this type of thing is great. But there really is no replacement for actually stepping into the scene of the crime, so to speak, and uh, you know, taking it all in and trying to conceptualize it, because I think that's just a big part of any cold case, whether you're talking. Uh, the Gardner Museum heist or something else like the D.B. Cooper case, you know, I try to put myself in the shoes of the culprits and try to uh, kind of think through what would I do if I was that person. And obviously doing the uh, Gardner Museum, having an opportunity to see that place, which is spectacular, of course, by the way, and I would recommend anybody who's in Boston to check it out. Uh, No, it it went a long ways towards giving me a a really good, solid feel for what happened and, or at least what I believe happened. (laughs) And, uh, and I think that that lends itself, frankly, to, uh, to creating a somewhat better understanding. and, And to that end, hopefully, Uh, ultimately solving this thing, figuring out where this, where this artwork is.
1: And you did, um, you were so excited when you went to the Gardner Museum. And I remember you texted us and you were like, Anthony Amore just welcomed me with open arms. And he took me out to dinner and uh, we had some drinks and uh, he, he just uh, regaled me with all of this Gardner Heist knowledge. Uh, That's really impressive that you got to know him so well.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think probably ghosted is a more accurate term, but we can roll with that.
1: (laughs) Okay. I'm sorry. I must've misinterpreted the email. (laughs) (laughs)
2: It sounds badass, but uh, no, I I have talked with Anthony and I have communicated with him uh, via email as well. Uh, That said, uh, it's been largely one way uh, for the last at least few weeks, um, you know, leading up to the time that I was there. Uh, Again, I think the term is ghosted. I think that's an accurate term, uh, which is a matter of some frustration. But hey, I don't take it personally. I get it. I mean, I'm sure the guy has all kinds of people reaching out to him. Uh, But uh, that said, that's the truth of the matter. Uh, No uh, drinks and no private tour or anything of that nature of the Gardner Museum.
1: For the people who are listening who are um, passionate about the Gardner heist, can you give a little background on the work you've done searching for an answer in D.B. Cooper's mystery so that they can sort of get a sense of like your pedigree?
2: As I mentioned, uh, I've been familiar with the D.B. Cooper case, which is a skyjacking that took place in November of 1971, unsolved. It's the only unsolved skyjacking in U.S. history. Tall and short of it is a guy shows up on a jet in Portland, Oregon, uh, skyjacks it as it's flying up to Seattle, Washington, which is a quick 36-minute flight. Uh, bring ostensibly carries a bomb on board and says, listen, I want $200,000 in cash, four parachutes. Uh, once we land in Seattle, if I get that, I'll let all the passengers go. Uh, the authorities delivered, they delivered the four parachutes and $200,000 in cash. DB Cooper let the uh, passengers go in Seattle. Uh, the three pilots, of course, stayed on board the jet and one of the flight attendants as well stayed on board the jet. Uh, The the plane took off uh, from Seattle, uh, uh, heading toward Mexico City, but there was a refueling stop uh, scheduled in Reno, Nevada. Uh, And about half an hour after the jet took off from Seattle, with the three pilots on the flight deck and and also the flight attendant at that point on the flight deck, so there was no one in the back of the jet, Uh, about half an hour after taking off from Seattle, uh, DB Cooper put on a parachute, tied the money to his person and jumped from the jet never to be seen or heard from again. So uh, to this day, they have no idea who DB Cooper was, his real identity. They don't know whether he lived or died. Uh, There's a lot we don't know about the the guy. There was a portion of his ransom, $6,000 of which was found. Uh, very mysteriously uh, about eight years after the skyjacking uh, buried in the sand along the Columbia River there in the Portland, Oregon area. Uh, And that's about it. But it's, it's a case that I uh, started investigating uh, years ago, and it's just one of these things. that started out as a guilty pleasure, but it ultimately just grew into something much bigger. Ended up writing a book about it. Ended up uh, uh, headlining a History Channel show about the uh, that premiered in uh, was 2020, November of 2020. Uh, also uh, appeared on uh, Expedition Unknown with Josh Gates in the last several months. Uh, part of another uh, streaming service service. Uh, I won't name the name of the streaming service, but a, a big docu series about the case that's going to be released later this year. But uh, so uh, I consider myself somebody who is kind of no nonsense. Uh, I believe in science. I believe in math. I'm not conspiracy driven. Uh, and I let the evidence speak for itself. And I think that uh, that served me well as far as the Cooper case is concerned. I think there are some parallels between the Cooper case and the Isabella Gardner Museum. And also there are some things about the Isabella Gardner Museum, specifically the way law enforcement has managed or handled this, uh, this investigation after 32 years uh, that I think that, that uh, frankly, they could learn by looking at the way the D.B. Cooper case has been, has been uh, managed in the last, in that case, 50 years.
0: Oh, interesting. I'm curious. Um, what it is? Any uh, anything further on on that? What could be learned by the DB Cooper investigation for the Gardner investigation?
2: Sure, absolutely. I think primarily it comes with just the manner in which law enforcement is dealing with this very cold case at this point. Uh, In the case of DB Cooper, it was like Isabella Gardner, just dead as a doorknob. There was just nothing, nothing coming out of the woodwork anywhere. They had absolutely no idea. Uh, There was a special agent who was um, managing the case, headlining or heading the case in Seattle, a guy named Larry Carr for the FBI. He decided to open it up. He said, listen, it's been at this point, you know, X number of years, four decades, whatever the case may happen to be. We're not getting anywhere. What the hell have we got to lose by opening up these files with some of this information that we've held back and putting it out there to the public? Larry's rationale was that, hey, listen, when it comes to bank robbers, and bank robberies, which the FBI handles, of course, the MO or the approach that the FBI takes is, is you know, let's do an investigation, let's get as much information as possible, then let's put as much as possible out to the public that we can. The idea, bring being the idea being that the public will bring a suspect to us, and they've been very effective as far as that goes. So you know, Special Agent Larry Carr rationalized, you know, what the hell, let's. Let's look at the DB Cooper skyjacking. It's essentially a bank robbery in the sky. Let's get as much information out there as possible to the public for decades on, and let's see what comes of it all. And I could argue, I would argue that we have learned an awful lot about the case from 2007, when this first started to where we are here in 2022. Uh, Along the lines uh, in recent years, six years ago, Uh, Through a Freedom of Information Act request, uh, the FBI started opening up their files related to the investigation. Thus far, we've got about 30,000 pages of FBI files that are out related to the case. Now, a lot of this stuff is heavily redacted, and a lot of it isn't, frankly, worth a damn. But there are some nuggets, and there are some gems in there. And the net effect of all of that, guys, is you get people like me and others that sort of crowdsource this thing. And they start taking a look at the evidence and the investigation. And it's not secondhand stuff that you read through the media, which is not always reliable. Uh, And they start doing doing investigations of their own. And over the course of the last several years in the D.B. Cooper case, uh, I think as a private investigative community, we've done an enormous amount of heavy lifting and have learned an awful lot. Not only have we identified specific areas where the FBI made mistakes, critical mistakes uh, because these people are not infallible, but there's a lot of other areas and a lot of other new newer evidence that we've discovered and newer things that we've come up with uh, in part because again the amount of you know the the -the state-of-the-art technology and so forth that we are able to avail ourselves of now uh, is completely different than what it was in the 70s, 80s, 90s and, and so forth. So In the case of the gardener, uh, they need to do the same thing. It's been 32 years. What the hell are you guys doing holding anything close to the vest at this point? You either want to recover the art or you don't want to recover the art. Arguably after nearly a third of a century, what you're doing hasn't worked. And I get it. I know everybody wants to be the rock star, the guy who figures out who, you know, where the artwork is and everything else. But at some point you got to kind of put that aside and you got to say, listen, we're, at the end of the day, what's of paramount importance is, is finding out where that missing artwork is, where there's 13 pieces of artwork are valued at between 500 million and a billion dollars. And obviously the cultural significance is hard to quantify as well. Uh, so the, and the only way that's gonna happen, the only way that's gonna happen is, uh, you know, Anthony Amore and also the FBI uh, being a little bit more generous as far as what they, what they put out there to the public. Standing on a stage nine years ago, 2013, saying, yeah, we know who did it, but we don't know where the artwork is, uh, doesn't cut it. Just, you know, I live in the real world that doesn't, that doesn't cut it. Uh, So I think that there needs to be a sea change in terms of how they approach this. Uh, In fact, I had a a conversation with Steve Kirkshin, as you well know, who worked, uh, former reporter with the, uh, with the Globe there, uh, three-time Pulitzer winner, and uh, he agreed. He said, listen, I think, you know, really the only way we're going to really make any progress on this is a file of Freedom of Information Act request and see what we can do about prying some of those uh, invest- investigative uh, reports and things of that nature from the FBI. And let's, let's have at it. Let's, you know, let's, let's get some fresh eyeballs on this and see what we can do as far as it goes. And
1: you had uh, mentioned these new technologies, and um, so much has come uh, in, in the way of uh, solving cold cases in the past 30, 40 years. Um, the, the, the research and the, and the application of these technologies to your investigation of D.B. Cooper, how do you see that? Because you've mentioned it, but uh, can you give a little more detail on how do you see something like that working in the Gardner heist, and, and where would the FBI start? to apply these applications
2: well first of all you know, there's dna and uh there's absolutely no doubt about it that some dna was left behind it seems all but certain now obviously it's been an awful long period of time i don't know exactly uh how the frames that were left behind the broken glass things of this nature i don't know how it has been preserved if it's been preserved at all but that's one thing uh one thing and i'm just thinking off the top of my head here uh, is the, how, the, um, the art, how the artwork, a couple of those pieces of artwork were actually cut from the frames. You know, there may be a way uh, to look at it uh, microscopically at a, at a microscopic level, the cut, the cut around the, the uh, canvas there. And you may be able to identify a type of metal, a type of steel, something of that nature. So therefore identify the type of tool that was used. Now that may seem like who gives a shit, But it actually may be very telling. I've seen this in the Cooper, Casey. You you discover these small, finite pieces of a particular grade of stainless steel, for example, and it can tell you an awful lot about the instrument or perhaps even where the culprits came from, things of that nature. So that's what I'm talking about as far as that is concerned, uh, applying some of the science. And I'm sure there are other ways as well to see what we can come up with in terms of, you know, hard physical, you know, tangible evidence, Uh, not to mention things like, and I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit here, but those, those paint chips, I know that, you know, some of the paint chips uh, were submitted to, um, I guess, probably Tom at the, or it came through, came through uh, Youngworth and uh, ended up going to Mashburg or something like that. But one way or the other, somebody looked at these old paint chips, McCrone Laboratories, In Chicago, whom I'm very familiar with, they actually did a lot of analysis regarding to the D.B. Cooper case world class people, Uh, you know, perhaps there's something that can be learned from looking at that in a little bit greater detail as well again some kind of DNA or, you know, maybe whoever, you know, etched off that those paint chips or whatever, maybe there's something left behind there at a microscopic level. That can tell us something about, again, the type of instrument, perhaps there's pollen or something of that nature on, on those chips. I mean, that's the kind of research that I'm talking about here. And again, we're 32 years out, man. I mean, like, you are either going to sit here and just talk about this shit or we're actually going to, you know, avail ourselves of some of the technology and things that we have in 2022 and uh, see what we can learn. And then at the same time, also put boots on the ground and start, you know, start searching for this stuff.
1: Yeah, that's super interesting that you're talking about trying to identify the uh, instrument that was used to cut out the paintings. And I guess I always assume that that section of the paintings um, were in evidence with the FBI. Is, am I wrong in assuming that, or, or is that the case? Or is it in evidence with like maybe the Boston police?
2: Well, my understanding is that that's actually sitting up in the museum right now. I think uh, Amore has at least one of the frames, you know, one of the uh, Rembrandts, uh, the frames for the Rembrandts with, the, or, or I should say not the frames because the frames are on the wall, but the, uh, the stretcher uh, and that there are like remnants of the original canvas kind of around the outside. That's my understanding. So, I mean, that that's the kind of stuff where, that really should be in evidence with the FBI or law enforcement. It should be preserved in the, uh, under ideal conditions. Now, having said that, because apparently it hasn't been preserved in ideal conditions, that's probably not going to help us a hell of a lot as far as DNA is concerned. But when you're dealing with something like, uh, stainless steel or pieces of metal or what have you, that's a different thing. I and mean, that, that stuff doesn't degrade. So, uh, we still may be able to find something out or learn something about, uh, that, uh, the, you know, the, the crime by looking at this stuff today, even if it's been hanging out on the, you know, the fourth floor of the museum.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I don't want to go too far back, but, um, can you share any of your thoughts on the, uh, the D.B. Cooper case?
2: Yeah. I mean, I have to tell you, I mean, I've, again, I've done an awful lot of, uh, research on this case and for quite a while, I, I felt like I was getting really close to identifying who the guy was and however i have to say in later uh probably within the last year i've i've come to the conclusion that he probably wasn't the guy the guy that i was originally thinking and that's based upon the evidence you know uh, particular db cooper apparently was a, a smoker a cigarette smoker and the one suspect that i had was focusing a lot of energy on uh, wasn't a, a, a smoker Uh, Fortunately for me, this suspect uh, recently passed away, he died in January of 2001, so just over a year ago, and he was 94 years of age at the the time he passed away, but I actually got a chance to to speak with him and uh, communicate with him. So, uh, you know, that highlights the importance of not wasting time, for example, in the Gardner Museum heist, because the more the time goes by, people die and that's it. So having the opportunity to, in in the case of Cooper, to speak with this one suspect, you know, personally, I think was invaluable. Uh, So I'm at a point now where I think the evidence, in my mind, the evidence uh, suggests that D.B. Cooper was probably somebody who came from the aerospace sector, I don't think from Boeing. I think he probably came from uh, Pratt & Whitney, uh, who obviously is a big aircraft engine manufacturer based in Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, and I'm not just saying that. I mean, there's actually scientific evidence that kind of that points directly to a Pratt and Whitney type of connection. And I would say that D.B. Cooper was probably somebody who, f- unbelievably, just flew completely under the radar for the last 50 years, uh, and that law enforcement has just never come across. So I'm actually doing a lot of research on that as well around the Connecticut area. Uh, seeing if there's some way I can identify somebody who was a former employee of Pratt Whitney, perhaps he got laid off, had a pink slip in hand and decided, you know what, <laughs> you know, skyjacking a jet and extorting 200,000 bucks is my ticket out, you know, and, uh, that, cause that appears to be the case. So, uh, but again, you know, to transition into the Gardner museum heist that illustrates, I think very well, the importance of not wasting time here. Again, it's been 32 years. That's enough time. Uh, for law enforcement to kind of do things the way they've been doing, uh, at this point they got to open it up and let's see what uh, let's see what others can do. And obviously, they can continue to you know pursue the case as well. And let's see what happens here because I think it's important to not lose sight of the fact that our objective, our primary objective, is to recover those thirteen pieces of artwork. And uh, and and I, I you know at this point you know, we need people who are alive. I mean, you know, we need to have firsthand testimony from people because there's, you know, somebody knows something, somebody knows something. There's absolutely no doubt about that in my mind. And yeah, if we wait another 50 years, well, those somebodies that know something obviously aren't going to be around any longer.
1: How wild would it be if while you're looking into the Gardner heist, you realize that it was DB Cooper who robbed the Gardner museum as well?
2: (laughs) Well, I can tell you with certainty that isn't the case, <laughs> because the the descriptions of the uh, the two thieves are uh, completely different than the description. I don't know. The
1: the one on the left, kind of, you know, could you you could convince me that that's DB
0: Cooper. <laughs> I'm glad you brought this up, Lance.
2: A lot of that, though, a lot of people because DB Cooper, we don't have any photographs. You know, we just have sketches, kind of like with the the two thieves here and you know you, 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 frankly they look like a, a heck of a lot of guys i mean the db cooper sketch uh, looks like somebody straight out of a madman episode and yeah i mean like it's just like a lot of people look like db cooper but uh, db cooper was about 45 years of age in 1971 at the time of the skyjacking so obviously by the time 1990 rolls around and the uh the garden museum heist takes place this guy's probably 64 65 years of age and unless uh you know rick abbott and randy are just really really bad at you know estimating the ages of these guys uh we can probably safely assume that they're not one and the same and
1: we'll be right back after
0: a quick word from our sponsors thanks to our sponsors and now we're back to the program Good point. I'm glad you brought it back to the uh, the gardener and um, the guards who were working that night, Rick and Randy. I know you've got some thoughts on um, on the guards from that evening. Can you, uh, yeah, let's move to the gardener. What uh, What are your thoughts on the gardener heist?
2: You know, uh, I believe it was an inside job. I believe there's an inside job element to it. Uh, and I think the statistics bear that out. I, I've heard 80% of uh, museum heist's, are in an inside job at some level uh and as i look at you know uh, rick and also randy that night and frankly the others there um i'm I'm convinced of it i'm convinced that there's an inside job aspect to it all again i live in the real world you know i folks i look for the evidence uh i'm not prone to conspiracies things of this nature so uh, obviously the one individual that's come under the brightest you know, spotlight, so to speak, has been Rick Abbott. And I think that that's fair. I think that's fair to put the bright, hot spotlight on him. Now, I want to be very clear about this. Uh, I cannot prove that Rick Abbott was involved with this, and I don't know that anybody can prove that he was. Obviously, he's never been charged or prosecuted, so that kind of speaks for itself. What I will say is this. uh, The actions of him that night were very suspicious, uh, not only the actions uh, when he was doing his rounds, you know, going through the blue room, he was apparently the last person there, but, you know, to the roof, but obviously he's the guy who, you know, opened the door momentarily moments before the two quote unquote police officers showed up and, uh, and ultimately were successful in convincing Rick to, to let him in. He's the guy who stepped away from the uh, alarm. I mean, there's just a lot of things here that are very suspicious, but, uh great i mean worth considering but i think the real thing that i have a hard time getting past is the physical concrete evidence from the motion detectors that apparently clearly show that the one and only individual who entered the blue room of course the room where the shea uh, tortoni from Manet was lifted uh that one and only person was abbott And there is no way to explain that, like, you know, because apparently the system was working perfectly fine. And I think when you couple that, that realization at 1227, he's walking through the blue room, he's, you know, in and out uh, for a minute. And then you look at some of the activities that followed which included him 10 minutes later, 1237, actually stepping outside of the roof on the fourth floor there momentarily on the Evans way side of the uh, museum. And then within two minutes, he's down in the Dutch room and he's in that area for about five minutes, the Dutch room, of course, where the, you know, the big part of the crime took place is this very suspicious. Uh, To me, I'm just giving you my opinion. Uh, To me, it appears that Rick, lifted the uh, Manet from the Blue Room, made his way to the roof shortly thereafter, signaled probably with a flashlight to the thieves parked in a car on Evan's way at this point that this is a go. Uh, The the thieves pulled around to the Palace Road side of the museum. Uh, Then obviously after Rick finished his rounds and Randy started his rounds, Uh, At that point, uh, appears that Rick opened the door to provide a a clear signal to the thieves sitting in the car out there who apparently waited for about 45 minutes for that signal. Uh, Considering, you know, those young students that saw the two police officers sitting in the car uh, that appeared to serve as some uh, type of signal that it's a go time and that, uh, you know, Randy's making his rounds and everything else. Uh, And I think that the reason that Rick dropped by the Dutch Room uh, again, you know, after the the visit to the roof, I I just suspect that he dropped off the mayonnaise in the room somewhere, (laughs) Either, either in the conservator's lounge, which is behind the wall there, or somewhere in the Dutch Room itself. So ultimately, you know, while Rick would have been the one that lifted it from the Blue Room and deposited it, you know, theoretically somewhere around the Dutch Room, uh, it would have been the two thieves, the two other thieves dressed as, as police officers that would have removed the, uh, the paintings from the museum. One thing I wanna bring up to here before I forget, uh, is it's notable. It, it, what, what's notable about this crime and the crime scene is that when you're talking, you know, the Dutch Room or the Shore Gallery, which is where the majority of the art was taken, artwork was taken, all the artwork that was taken for, from those two rooms were, were disassembled in the rooms that they, they were resided in. We, we can see the frames and the broken glass in the Dutch room and also the short gallery. The one notable difference to the blue room is that the Chez Tortoni was not disassembled where it resided. It was not disassembled in the blue room. It apparently was disassembled in the security director's office because the frame was left there. So there is a little bit of a different MO as far as how those two parts of the crime took place, which I consider very suspicious as well and hard to rationalize uh, unless uh, the the scenario, the truth of the scenario was something along the lines of what I said in terms of Rick just dropping the, the, the picture off uh, in the Dutch room, unless it's called it the Dutch room, but somewhere near the Dutch room. And ultimately the thieves Uh, brought it down and for whatever reason, disassembled it there um, near the security officers, uh, security director's uh, office.
1: Pretty cool. Pretty cool breakdown of all of that. And I'm wondering, was this all going through your head when you visited the museum over the weekend? Uh, Were you I mean, obviously, it was when you're standing there. What was that like when you first saw it after looking into this uh, crime? Um, Take us through those moments, like going into the museum and, and finally seeing them.
2: You know, the thing is, uh, obviously, I had seen a lot of pictures of that uh, center, you know, lush courtyard area, so that looked totally familiar and I was also very familiar with the layout of the museum so I felt comfortable as far as that was concerned I knew where the stairs were and the rooms and all this type of thing, the one thing that was that really. That was really kind of interesting was just the rooms themselves how kind of small they were and 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 just almost just crammed full of artwork I mean it, it really had a very intimate cozy kind of feel that I really didn't expect each of the rooms, especially some of the smaller rooms, smaller galleries. Uh, so that was one of the things that I noted, which was kind of fascinating. And I tried to imagine what it would be like to negotiate those corridors and those small rooms at night when it's dark. And that also gets me thinking, yeah, these guys were kind of familiar with this place. They knew what they were doing. The other thing that impressed me was just the sheer amount of art. And, I, and again, it's been brought up before. This is nothing new. Uh, just this the thought crosses my mind what what possesses them to take the pieces of art that they took. You know, this is a short gallery, you know, the finial. I mean, it's, you know, it's just one of those things where this seems kind of like an odd eccentric mix of, of art, but, but where these things were located and trying to come up with a common thread that kind of ties in with all of it is a little bit difficult to do. Uh, so at the end of the day, it almost appears to me like you know the Dutch room was obviously the target, the Rembrandts were clearly the target. Uh, the other stuff, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's just kind of like what the hell, we're here, let's just grab a little extra stuff. I don't, I'm, I'm not sure, I don't know. But it's, it was definitely, uh, it was definitely eye opening from that perspective. And also considering that these guys were there for 81 minutes, they're there for 81 minutes without a care in the world, apparently, taking all the time in the world. Uh, that definitely does give one the impression that they were not at all concerned about the cops showing up and you know which again seems to suggest that perhaps you know that the, the seems likely that there was some sort of inside job aspect to it uh, also got me thinking to be perfectly honest with you how do we know that the two guys that showed up weren't actually real cops just crooked cops i mean they had uniforms i don't know they and they, had, they would have radios i mean
0: how dare you, Eric? What's that? The boys in blue in Boston—they would never. There's never been a corrupt Boston police officer. You know, it's one of those
2: things where it's like—take like, that back. I, I definitely am not going to assume that that there weren't a couple crooked cops involved with this, or maybe one of the one of them was uh, was a crooked cop. the other guy was just somebody else. But no, it it definitely uh, it definitely helps kind of put it in the perspective there's absolutely no doubt about it and uh, no i you know and, and also it's just very impactful frankly as you all well know you know walking in there and seeing these empty frames on the walls i mean it's just uh wow it's just it's just a powerful thing you know and i'm not somebody that's like just a real appreciator or lover of art but i gotta tell you man i was really getting into like looking at these things close up you know the one Rembrandt that they still have there and the other paintings there. it was spectacular. And actually I took the opportunity to shoot down to New York City a, a couple of days later and went to the Met <laughs> and checked out uh, you know the the uh, Rembrandts that they have there, the Vermeers and and uh, other mayonnaise and so forth. and uh, I certainly got a uh, gained a much greater appreciation for the uh, the enormity of of the crime and, and these masterpieces. but, uh, yeah that's all stuff that man you only you only pick up by actually going there in person
0: yeah, the cultural rev- relevance um, of the museum is is off the charts, and uh, it's endlessly fascinating to walk around in because it is a crime scene. And, you know, you mentioned that those 81 minutes, it is something to think about when you're walking through there. It's like you can, you can easily see every single piece of artwork in 81 minutes if you really want to in there. You know, so what were the thieves doing with all that time? But you mentioned the word of the day, Eric, and it's finial. Um, did, you, did you see the news report um, from back in November of 2021? There was a jeweler from Boston named Paul Calentropo who said that he was shown the stolen finial by his ex-friend, Bobby Donati. And we're going to play a uh, quick news clip about that right here.
1: Three decades, a new clue in the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. A jeweler now coming forward, linking a longtime suspect to one of the pieces of stolen art. The case has had dozens of leads, as you know, but ultimately the location of 13 stolen works of art remains a mystery. Our Tim Caputo taught, caught up with the appraiser who may be able to answer some of the unanswered questions about the stolen art, Tim.
3: Well, Sean, he's retired now, down in Florida. This former appraiser, we tracked him down there in Florida, and he says he was shown one of those stolen items just weeks after the heist. He hasn't spoken publicly about it in 30 years, until now. All these decades, everyone's been focused on the missing paintings from the Gardner Museum heist, but it's this small flagpole topper called a finial that might be the final piece needed to solve this puzzle.
4: I mean, it's not one of a kind. It's, uh, I mean, it's pr- it's pretty valuable now. Might be worth. You know forty or fifty thousand dollars, but back then it probably was worth ten.
3: Paul Calentropo appraised fine art and jewelry in Boston for nearly fifty years, and he says a month after the heist, an old friend Bobby Donati, who also happened to be a career criminal connected to the mob, showed up at his downtown shop with that eagle finial
4: and uh he's like, you know hey Paul, what's this worth? Everybody knows what this is, everybody knows where it came from it's." It's and it's not that valuable to begin with, but now it's really worthless, you know.
3: Despite the encounter, he didn't go to police right away, because as a good appraiser, the other thing he values is his life.
4: This guy was also uh, associated with people who uh, murdered people for a living, you know, so... It was, uh, that was out of the question.
3: A year after the Gardner heist, Donati was murdered at his home in Revere. Calantropo says he finally went to the FBI around five years ago.
4: No, I know they didn't know about Bobby because when I first talked to them at the museum with uh, the FBI and Anthony Amore, uh, and I started telling them things, they were breaking their uh, arms, writing notes down, and they were super excited. Donati
3: has long been on the list of potential suspects, and a few years ago, the FBI said they identified the two men involved in the heist and said they're both dead, but the feds wouldn't name names. The FBI is now just focused on finding the art, as is Calantropo, who's finally talking publicly about this encounter with Donati, hoping that day won't be the last time he'll see the finial in person.
4: You know, I'm 70 years old. Uh, It breaks my heart not to see that stuff on the wall.
3: Now, I reached out to the FBI's Boston office. They wouldn't confirm or deny Calantropo's story or really anything about Donati or even the heist, saying this is all part of an ongoing investigation. But they also wanted to remind everyone there is still that ten million dollar reward for
0: information leading to the return. Okay, so Eric, what do you make about this uh, latest lead in the Gardner heist?
2: I don't think it's worth a damn. To be perfectly honest with you, uh, I'm highly i am highly suspect of uh, any kind of uh, you know witness testimony like this decades after the event. Uh, again, and this—this this isn't just me. You know, voicing an opinion, uh, I can apply some of the skills and the skill set that I uh, have gleaned and learned from my from my years of experience in the DB Cooper case, and I can point to a lot of similarities. Uh, for whatever reason, there are always people years after the fact who you know want to claim that they were the culprit, or they knew the culprit, or they happened to see something or come across something you know, for whatever reason. And, you know, obviously, every one of these people and every one of these confessions and pieces of testimony cannot be accurate. By definition, they all can't be. In fact, they none of them may be. So I don't know what that tells us about the human condition and the need for some people to you know, I guess kind of be known for something in life. I, I don't know, or, you know, to be associated with something, but I'm, I'm just highly suspect of that. Part of it too, is, uh, part of the reason for that is, uh, irrespective of what the FBI and what Amore say, I, I just don't think organized crime was involved with this thing. The, I, I, I look at this thing, I approach it with a completely open mind and I just, uh, can't find a single piece of credible evidence pointing to anybody in organized crime with being involved in this at any level whatsoever and 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 here's here's the thing like there's been a reward five ten million dollars it's ten million dollars now plus an immunity deal on the table for lord knows how many years the only people that cannot avail themselves of this are the two guys who lifted the art. Everybody else, we're good. If you purchase the stolen art or a por- portion of the stolen art, you can return it. You're not going to get prosecuted. and You're going to become rich. And you can go to Vegas and live out your life drinking, you know, pina coladas out there. The fact that absolutely nobody has taken advantage of that deal is stunning. Not to mention there have been organized crime figures that have done decades of time in jail. There have been other organized figures who have literally died in prison, others that could have died in prison. And there's just no way in hell that I'm buying this narrative that somebody knows where this stuff is and that nobody has taken advantage of it as a get out of jail free card or something of that nature, or just to simply cash in. So uh, I'm just not buying it. I, I just see absolutely nothing to support the notion that organized crime was involved with it. And, uh, you know, I, I know that Anthony and the FBI is going to sit back and say, well, Eric, you don't know everything we know. And I'm going to say, well, that's sure. That's great. But what I do know is there's been $10 million reward out there, a letter of immunity. Nobody's taken anything up, taken up on it. Again, people have served time in prison, died in prison. Nobody said it, said anything about it. And apparently there's absolutely no credible credible evidence that any of the pieces have ever been seen or, or what have you by anybody, unless somebody wants to try to convince me that that finial sitting in the FBI uh, evidence locker box uh, in downtown Boston, we just don't know about it. They're just like, you know, secreting it away, kind of like, you know, for, for some reason after 32 years. So uh, again, I live in the real world and I just, I don't see any reason to... Uh, to think that's the case. So in the case of Donati here, you know, rolling up with the finial or whatever, to me, it just seems a little too fantastical and it just doesn't pass the smell test as far as I'm concerned.
1: What do you um do for a profession? Is this what you do full time?
2: In, in a way, I guess you could say, uh, uh, obviously, um, you know, starting with the uh, db cooper special that i headlined on the history channel that's led to other things so um my time now for the last i guess three or four years has really been spent in that realm working on the uh, tv and, and tv production side of of uh some of this stuff so Uh, and I'm working on some other programs related to these types of things There's discussions as well taking place about the Gardner museum. So I can't can't really get too much into the specifics as far as that goes, but uh, yeah. So in a roundabout way, I kind of just came full circle and ended up uh, (laughs) finding myself in a space where I'm really just frankly leveraging, uh, you know but my experiences over the better part of the last 15 years uh, looking into cold cases and things of this nature.
1: Okay, cool. Yeah, because your approach is uh, very detail-oriented, and um, it wouldn't surprise me if a previous life you were like an accountant or something.
2: <laughs> well, I uh, wasn't an accountant, but I'll tell you something that's a little bit new. Probably haven't had this happen before. Uh, for many years, I played professional-level blackjack as a card counter. This was primarily through the 90s, so if you're familiar with the movie 21, the Kevin Spacey, MIT guys, that kind of thing, that's the kind of thing. Now, that seems to be wholly unrelated to this, but it's not. <clears throat> and the reason why is because when you're a card counter, uh, you know, you're applying pure math to uh, to uh, the game, the game blackjack and the casino. And for somebody who is proficient with it, uh, they can pick up about a one and a half to two percent edge over the casino. The one thing that I learned over my many years of playing and I was very successful with it is that uh, there's no room for hunch. I mean, if if you're in a casino and you, you know, you you start playing hunches and things of that nature, you you sure shit will end up losing every dollar you have. You have to play the math. You have to play exactly how you're supposed to play as the odds dictate. And um, that got drilled into my head. That got drilled into my head. So uh, applying you know the skill set that really started back in those days in the 90s to my investigations moving forward i've always had the same sort of approach methodology which is you know put you know hunches and you know conspiracy and all that stuff aside and and really try to rely as heavily as possible upon the math and the science and and the evidence and things of this nature now that's not to suggest that you know, some conjecture isn't required here because there's a lot that's still missing. But, I, uh, but I'm a big fan of, of focusing on on those things that I can really kind of back up and prove and applying Occam's razor to the, to the case, which is, you know, the, the simplest explanation is usually the closest to the truth. And uh, so just taking that type of approach and so forth, that's actually uh, done an awful lot in terms of contributing to how I approach these cases and shaping the methodology that I apply.
0: Interesting. Um, I, I I am kind of a stickler about one thing and uh, and it is, it is that, that, I think it's a fact that it's organized crime that pulled off the heist because there's two people involved, you know. So I kind of think saying it was organized crime is also a little bit of a cop out um, because that could just mean two people who've never committed a crime before happen to be uh, organized, at least to some degree, the evening of this heist. So sorry for my complete sticklerism, but uh, (laughs) I feel like I always have to make that point.
2: Well. I think it's fair to say that as far as uh, the FBI and Amore are concerned, you know, when they talk about organized crime, they're talking about it in a somewhat more traditional sense, TRC, TRC auto electric, you know, Donati Gentile, uh, Bobby Garanti, you know, the the usual suspects, you know, and, um, and I just don't see it. I just, I don't, there's there's nothing in my mind that actually substantiates any of that. I realize that, you know, Garanti's widow said this and, you know, you know, uh, Reisfelder's brother said that, and you know, the ex sister-in-law said something else. I mean, I realized that, but you know, great. You know, a lot of people said a lot of things about a lot of things and you got a lot of money that's on the line here. So how do you really know what the hell the motives of these people are? The common thread with all of this shit though, the common thread with all of this is not a single soul has been able to come up with anything substantive or material to prove that they've ever seen any of this artwork or ever came across any of this artwork, nothing. You know, we talk about the sending in the paint chips, you know, Youngworth sending in the paint chips. Seriously, who gives a shit? Send a a damn finial in. Send a freaking finial in, that solves it. Okay, well, that's the finial, we we believe you now. So it's just these kind of cat and mouse, kind of Mickey Mouse type of things. I'm just highly suspect of that. So I just, you know, to me, honestly, it feels like, we're dealing with a bunch of con men who are trying to figure out a way to con the authorities. <laughs> it's like one big con and they're all trying to con each other and, you know, con businessmen who they think are legitimately, you know, trying to buy, you know, some of this artwork on the, you know, underground uh, artwork network or what have you. And it, it, to me it just the whole thing just stinks to high heaven. None of it passes a smell test. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, artwork talks, bullshit walks. Where is it? 32 years. I mean, there's nothing substantive or credible that anybody can point to that I'm aware of that indicates anybody has any idea where this stuff is. Uh, so that's, again, I live in the real world. That's where I'm, you know, that's where I am now. Okay. I mean, I get it. The FBI and Anthony Amore proudly, uh, you know, uh, pound their chest and say we know who the two uh, guys were. Uh, we just haven't, you know, we're we're onto the final stage or whatever of the investigation. Well, I'm kind of keenly aware of the fact is that, that was nine years ago, and we still ain't got nothing. So, like, that's sort of problematic in my world. You know, that tells me that maybe you guys don't know as much as you think you know. Um, and uh, you know, maybe again, like I said, to come full circle, maybe it's time that you guys open this thing up. And let some other people have a look at this, and, and take a look at some of the stuff, and see see what you know, see what's going on here.
1: And have you ever spoken with one of our previous guests? He's a regular on Empty Frames, uh, Paul Turbo Hendry.
2: I have not. I know who he is. Uh, I know who Art Brand is, and uh, you know, I, I mean, so I'm familiar with the you know the experts, so to speak. Uh, well, that's not fair. And these are experts. I, I do know who these experts are, but I, I have not actually talked with uh, any of them.
1: Yeah, I think it would be a fascinating conversation to have you and um and Turbo because he's he's about like the process to get the paintings back not so much concerned with who in fact perpetrated the crime but hey we could probably get them back if we did this which is um a priceless, which is per painting um reward uh per item uh instead of like the <laughs> the thing that's been out there for years that hasn't worked which is all of them back in reasonable condition so he's he's about like uh making some itemized itemized yeah. subtle I, changes I to the, re- the the return yeah. process and it does make sense yeah
2: I mean, I think that it could certainly be fine tuned as far as that goes. I don't know if it's going to make a difference uh, because, you know, if I'm sitting on some of this artwork, I know that I can cash in and maybe it's not in pristine condition you know, I'm still probably going to reach out to an attorney or somebody and see if maybe there's some way I can come up with a portion of the of the money. Like the fact that nobody has said anything is just really problematic is, is in my mind as far as that goes. So, um, you know, and, and this is important to to think about as well. And I know I brought this up with you gentlemen before when we spoke recently. You know, you've got You know, experts like Art Brand looking into this and others that are that are looking into the heist and they've almost sort of advocated to a certain degree, getting them, you know, them being more involved with it, instead of just Anthony Amore and the FBI. The thing about it is part of the, I'm not so sure that the experts are really going to help us solve this the, the art recovery experts and the reason why I think that is because the art recovery ex, experts are outstanding as long as that artwork made its way into the traditional underworld channels related to the art trade illicit art trade if the stuff never made it into those channels I don't know how these uh, art recovery experts are going to really help because at that point it's just basically a garden variety crime at the end of the day if the two guys that ripped off the garden Museum or a couple of guys earning minimum wage at radio shack and they decided to just do this thing and to cash in on the insurance money for example they rip it off two days later they realize there's no insurance money to be had because it was publicized in the media and they decide you know what if there's one thing I value more than the money associated with this artwork, it's my freedom. Therefore, I'm going to stick this in a my attic or something like that and just leave it leave it alone and let's see what happens. Uh, how, how is it ever going to get found by you know the quote unquote art recovery experts? What is I, I would argue that person who would actually be best positioned to find it would be one of the aforementioned Boston police officers, not, not a corrupt one, but, a, you know, somebody, somebody a little more local, like a, a local law enforcement official, or, or j- even just, you know, frankly, a, a sleuth, an internet sleuth, or somebody like that, who just does some prodding around. So, you know, I, and I also point to the fact that it's been 32 years and we've, we, we have experts like Art Brand and others that have been looking at this thing and you know have played certain roles in trying to recover it. And nothing has come of it, nothing has come of that. And to me, it's almost sort of an indication of, okay, well, perhaps the reason nothing has come of it, these, these investigations by these experts, these art recovery experts, is because we're just looking in the wrong spot. I mean, again, that artwork is not floating around in those channels, it's just not there, it's somewhere else. So uh, that's something worth keeping in mind as well. I'm of the opinion, and I think the statistics bear it out that the artwork never left the United States. Uh, I also think the statistics bear out that the artwork is probably in Boston or very near Boston, somewhere around the New England area. And I also think that it's unlikely that the artwork was uh, separated. I, I, If I had to hazard a guess, I would say all 13 pieces together. And the reason why I say that, again, is because we've heard nothing about any of these pieces anywhere. And it just stands to reason, in my diseased mind, that if you've got, you know, all of a sudden pieces flying all over the place among, you know, being trafficked among several different unsavory individuals all over the place, I'm just having a really hard time, guys, believing that nobody said, you know what? Yeah, I could use 5 million or a million or whatever right now to turn this stuff over, a portion of this artwork over. I I just have a really hard time with that.
1: What's your next step?
2: I'm glad you asked that question because there is a next step. Again, the the objective, let's identify the objective. The objective is to recover the art. That's the first thing. Let's recover that art or or some of the art or whatever we can come up with. That's the first thing. I think we have to start looking uh, at other suspects, And the only reason I say we have to start looking at other suspects is because we have to start searching somewhere. We got to get boots on the ground. We got to start putting holes in the ground. We got to start tearing out walls. We got to start looking in dark, creepy attics and storage facilities and things of that nature. But we have to start somewhere. And I think working with, you know, looking at exploring other suspects, I think is a good way to go about it because it may provide us a sense of some direction or somewhere to start. You know, I'll give you an example, Brian McDevitt. Brian McDevitt uh, is somebody that the FBI and apparently uh, Anthony Morey have written off, said no way in hell, Brian McDevitt was involved with this thing. I'll just tell you what, I've looked at McDevitt in in a lot of detail. And for those of you who don't know, McDevitt's a guy who tried doing the same damn thing 10 years earlier, 1980, at the Hyde Museum in New New York and failed. Did a couple of years in jail and, you know, whatever. Uh, I've looked at Brian McDevitt in, in a lot of detail here, and uh, I can say that I've been unable to come up with anything to eliminate this guy as a suspect. Uh, and there's a lot of circumstantial stuff that points to him as well. Now, McDevitt's is no longer alive. He apparently passed away in 2004. But he's the kind of guy, he's the kind of guy that I think I would be looking at very closely in, in his relationships back then, very closely to see if they know anything Uh, mcdevitt had uh, a girlfriend that he dated back then 1990 fortunately she kept a very detailed diary of what was going on at that time unbeknownst to her during the heist uh and there are a lot of things in that diary that that i think are highly suspect that i mean definitely uh are worth considering so to sort of categorically dismiss a guy like brian mcdevitt out of out of the out of the realm of suspects just doesn't make any sense to me uh, one other thing that's worth considering as far as McDevitt is concerned is Randy, one of the guards, Randy, the guy that I'm, you know, absolutely convinced had absolutely nothing to do with this. Uh, he said that with 90 to 95% certainty that it was Brian McDevitt, that that he was the guy who chained him up in the in the basement. 90 to 95% certain that McDevitt was the guy who did it. Now, I realize people have faulty memories, and sometimes, you know, you know, your mind kind of goes askew after a period of time. But these are the kind of things that I I can't overlook. I'm like, you know, you know, that's something that's worth considering there. So uh, what that means as far as all this goes, what I'm inclined to do is, you know, work to a debit angle, work the angle from other suspects. If I can identify areas of town they live, places that they frequented, associates, things of that nature. That provides a starting point as far as looking into, you know, again, the backyards with, you know, ground penetrating radar or, you know, looking inside of interior walls of places or in attics or things of that nature, or perhaps talking with people that they know closely and seeing if there's something there. Uh, Brian McDevitt's old girlfriend, the one that I referenced a few minutes ago. Happens to live in the same town I live in. We, we, I live in the uh, Phoenix, Arizona area. She happens to live here. So I've got a chance to, to get to know her uh, pretty well. And, uh, and I've told her, I said, you know, it, speaking with you is invaluable because there may be something in there, something that you wrote or something that you recall that to you is meaningless, means nothing. But to me or to somebody that's looking at this from an investigative perspective may, may realize that, holy crap he said this or he did this or he went where i mean that that may provide you know there may be a nugget of something there that is that just opens the whole thing up or blows the whole case wide open so uh so that's that's what i'm doing those are the that's the the path that i'm pursuing i'm looking at other uh, suspects and ultimately that's going to involve getting boots on the ground there and doing exactly what i said putting holes in the ground tearing up walls and uh You know, slinking around through uh, dark, creaky attics with spiders and everything else. And uh, let's see if that stuff's out there. Because I believe, brothers, that stuff's out there. I I think the 13 pieces are out there somewhere uh, just waiting to be found
0: great well thanks a lot for uh for sharing your thoughts um with us here today and uh we really appreciate it. if you need any help with anything please let us know we will certainly uh lend our assistance wherever we can and uh, i think it's a great thing that you're looking into new suspects again let us know if anything uh comes up and whatever you do don't look into my dad
2: (laughs) Well, Fair enough.
1: Okay. Well, awesome. Thanks so much for joining us. This has been a great conversation. And yeah, if you need any help, of course, like Tim said, we're here for you. And um, anytime you have a development, let us know if you feel like it's uh, show worthy. We'd love to have you back on.
2: Uh, Perfect. I appreciate it very much. It's been a lot of fun and look forward to uh, being in Boston again shortly. And uh, we'll all go out and grab a few beers and talk about this thing.